Hey there! Welcome back to Ask the Reporter, the show where I ask reporters questions about the stories that they wrote. So first off, I have uh, some of our new reporters. Their names are Kristen and Steph. And then I also interview Jesus, who's actually one of the editors. I talked to Kristen a little bit about the Academic Senate meeting that she attended and what that all means for us students. And then I also talked to Steph about the Muslim ban and how the Muslim Student Association um, has reacted. And then I talked to Jesus about the gender-inclusive housing. And then I talked to him a little bit about his chronicle, which I loved. You can check these stories out on the internet, on csusignal.com, or um, in the print edition. So let's get started. So I'm here with Kristen Diaz. Hi, Kristen. Hello. Um, so can you tell me what your story was about this week? So basically my story was about the resources uh, on, available on campus for the potential changes to immigration law. And it was at the Academic Senate meeting that took place on January 31st, a couple weeks ago. Um, what did they talk about at this Academic Senate meeting? So there were a few things that they had on the agenda. One of them was about the transition of the presidential team that uh, just changed over. But the most important topic of discussion I thought was the resources available to faculty and students due to the potential changes for immigration law and its enforcement. Um, are there any new resources? Like, is this all new or has this always been here? So a few of the resources that they mentioned was the Counseling Center and the Admissions and Outreach Services, which is available on Stan State. But they also have this new program, or it's not a new program, but it's the Dreamers Summit, and you can sign up for that. Um, it takes place on February 24th, and they have a... Is it like a sign-in? It's it's more of like a registration form that's available on the Stan State website. If you just type in Dreamer Summit, it should come up. Or you can click the link that's on my in my article and sign up for that. As of January thirty first, the, uh, the one of the women that was speaking said that only one hundred and four students and faculty had signed up for it. So. So is that like a like a big event for people to go to? It's basically they bring in professional speakers, I believe, and they just kind of clarify um, on some issues that people might be confused about or they might need more information about. And uh, the attendees will kind of be able to ask questions uh, about the concerns they might have and kind of go from there and see what the next step might be. Is there anybody that um, that you talked to that kind of said something really interesting or something that stood out a lot? Well, there were a lot of really good questions asked by the members at the meeting. They were very interactive with the women speaking. They wanted, they wanted to know what they could do, if they could do anything more for their students. The, I thought a really good question by the speaker, oh, what's his name? the speaker of the faculty, Stuart Sims, he asked a really good question, like, what can we do as people, um, as colleagues and as mentors to people who might have questions about this, what should we say to them, basically? And the attorney that was speaking there told them that 
there are people out there fighting for them and that there are resources available to these people who need it. Um, so that's another resource that was available, which I talk about in my article, is her name is uh, Solange Altman. She's an attorney from El Concilio, which is a nonprofit organization. Um, I think it's in Modesto, but I have the link again for it in my article. And she was basically doing all the talking and she was explaining what is happening out there in the kind of legal sphere and what's changing and what they are doing to work with those changes and to help people out there. How many people were at the academic senate meeting? Like, was it a, like a lot of people? Do you think maybe um, there should have been more if there wasn't a lot? I'd say the room was pretty packed. Almost every seat available to the meeting members was filled. Where was this? It was... Was it in, like, a classroom? No, it was in the conference room. In the Oh, in, in a the, conference room? In the faculty... The cabin-looking yeah, thing? I, yeah, yeah, that one. I still haven't learned all the names yet <laughs> for everything. But yeah, the meeting was on January 31st, and it was at from 2 to 4, and anybody could come. So we were... I was really excited to get to go because it was a new experience for me, and I mm-hmm. got to learn a lot of different stuff and get a lot of good stories for, for potential stories. And do they have any more meetings like this, like anything that people can attend afterwards? I'm not sure. I only learned about the meeting through my editor, Alondra, and from there I just kind of was like, okay, well, I jumped in and uh, just kind of went to see what was going on. Um, So is there any last thing that you want to add, maybe, that you wish more people knew about this? I would say get involved, and if you hear about one of these things, it's really great to get to go to them. And to just hear what's happening around the campus, like I, there's so many things that I didn't even know were, were going on, and it was really cool to get to see everything in kind of the working stages and all the people involved, and just seeing all these people come together, and they care so much about students, and they're the faculty and everybody involved in the school. And so I would just encourage other people to go and check it out for themselves if they had the opportunity to. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. So I'm here with Stephanie. How do you pronounce your last name? It's uh, Steph Landeros. Steph Landeros, okay. Um, And then tell me about the article that you wrote this week. So this week I published an article online about the uh, effects uh, of the student, I mean, of the Muslim ban uh, on students here at Senegal State. And so um, I interviewed two students who happened to be Muslim, and uh, I asked them about what what types of things are directly affecting them from this ban. And so since they're both um, not from the seven countries that were banned, uh, and they're both here legally, like under legal status, um, they said that there isn't anything that directly affected them in terms of the ban itself, but there's a lot of things that indirectly affected them, like uh, the increased negative attitudes towards the Muslim community, um, and then two, both of them actually uh, volunteer and work with uh, refugee people. So uh, the first one that I interviewed, she is a tutor at Turlock High School, 
um, and she tutors a lot of the refugee refugee youth. And so, and then uh, the other person I interviewed, uh, he actually volunteers his free his spare time um, to help refugee families with uh, shopping with, for groceries, uh, driving them places, dropping their children off whenever they aren't able to drop them off at school, picking them up, getting translating their mail. Um, and helping them pay the bills in terms of like translating translating the mail. And then, um, what is what does the refugee population look like here in Turlock? Um, the second person I talked to, he said that they're expecting about two hundred and seventeen people uh, families. I think um, I'm not sure. He wasn't. He was unclear if it was families or individuals. Um, so it's it's pretty big. And he was saying that the IRC the I'm not sure what the acronym is for the IRC. It's like an international center for refugee something. Basically, mm-hmm. they help with the placements here in Turlock. Um, and I know that there's an office based out of the Bay Area. And then, like, uh, for people who do want to help out, how can they maybe help out or volunteer their time? Or, like, would that be helpful? What What can people do? Um, basically, what I heard from both of, the, for both of them was... Uh, that yeah like if you see someone in need just go ahead and help them you know in any way that you can um the second person his name is magic uh majid i should say um and he just was he only volunteers out of the kindness of his heart like there isn't an organization that he's based out of or anything he was just randomly hanging out with one of his friends one day and then he happened to run into somebody who was a refugee and so he was talking to them and gave him his phone number um and told him hey like if there's anything i can do let me know and so word of mouth got around saying that you know there's this guy who's willing to help out people translating doing all the things like definitely give him a call uh and so that's how he started out he started uh he told me that he volunteered at least six hours every day um and then did interviewing uh these people kind of change the way that you see things like did this open your eyes to new things that you maybe not may not have known before um, in a way, yeah, it kind of, uh, it opened my heart more, uh, not, not, not my eyes. I've always seen this. I've always acknowledged it. I've always known that there's this crisis, but being so close to it, you know, like, um, I interviewed two people who are directly working with people who are being directly affected by these things. Um, for example, the, the, one of the stories that really touched me was, uh, the woman that I interviewed, uh, she, the tutor at Turlock High School, uh, she was telling me that uh, at one point she was working with this uh, young girl and this girl was telling her about a story when she was back home that they were, her and her father were walking, the, the little girl. She ha- and at that time she was in sixth grade or so and they were walking and out of nowhere like her father got shot. And so this little girl who's in sixth grade had to drag her father inside their house and start pulling bullets out of his arm, you know, like being so close to that. Like, I know this person and that little girl knows this person. Like, we're one person and we're connected in one way or another, you know. So that like that really affected me um, in the sense that like it's really so close to home, you know, like if people just are willing to listen to other people's stories, then it just makes everything come to reality. Um, and is there anything that you maybe want like people to know, like readers to know that they may not have known before? These are marginalized communities that have always been uh, picked on for one reason or another. Um, we saw the rise of hate crimes towards Muslim communities or not not just Muslim communities, but anybody, any religious 
uh, community comes out of the Middle East after the 9-11 attacks. You know, we've seen people destroy their mosques, attack them, attack women in, in, uh, in their hijabs. Like, you know, we've seen violence towards these people, and yet people go on about their lives like, oh, that's not happening to me, so therefore I don't care about it. You know, you have to care about it, you know. In order for this, for these issues to be faced and talked about, like, you need to care. Because if you don't care, then these people are going to be suffering. They're going to be continually marginalized and suffering. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming in. Okay. So now I'm here with Jesus um, Alvarado. How, how do you pronounce your last name? Alvarado. Alvarado. Okay. I'm really bad with last names. You're good. <laughs> um, and I also have Steph here to help me interview him. And we're going to talk about those two stories that you had in the print edition this month. So you want to talk about the first one, the um, LGBT how floor? Would... Yeah. Um, so the first article that I wrote for the print edition, this issue, um, is about how housing is implementing their new gender inclusive living floor for next school year. Um, Something to know about me is that I knew this because I work for the dorms. I'm a resident assistant there. Um, And I remember my supervisors kind of telling us that they were coming together to create this floor that's very gender inclusive. And it's very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. And um, something that they emphasized is that though there's only a floor that's targeted um, for this type of living, that doesn't mean that other type of floors, like freshman floors, won't have um, rooms assigned to cater to this type of living. So though there will be only this floor, mainly that will be catering to the LGBTQ plus community, uh, we will have um, a few other rooms that will be placed um, in the freshman side to also cater to them. Um, Because right now this floor will be implemented in the upperclassmen area. So we also have to have access. We also have to give access to the lower class men. And then I know in your story you mentioned that we used to have it and then we didn't and then we do again. What are you uh, doing differently this time around? You know, um, I wasn't, I don't think I was here when they used to have their prior floor. um, But my supervisor told me that that floor only lasted for about two years or so. And that the only reason why it stopped existing or they stopped offering it was because not a lot of people were signing up to live in that floor. And the reason why they weren't signing up to live in that floor was because they felt that they were like singled out. Like they were like, well, why do I have to live here just because I'm this? Um, So they they thought of it like, oh, I want to be like the others and I want to live wherever I want. So in a way they were, they they felt like um, singled out from the whole community and they kind of didn't like that. And this is according to my supervisor. And so that's why a lot of people did not like the fact that they needed to sign up for it or they felt that they needed to sign up for it. Um, So I guess something differently that they'll be doing is uh, um, they'll they'll be more focused on the programming of this floor um, in regards to like what programs they will be doing for the students who live in this floor. It will be targeted to more like LGBTQ plus issues, um, what they're facing, um, ide- uh, sexual and gender identity exploration um, because and it will also mainly um, serve as a safe safe zone for these residents because um, all in all like these residents do need um, a place that they that they can surely feel safe 
in order for them to like comfortably um, start, uh, explore for their identity and sexual identity. I know the LGBTQ plus community is very extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. So within this new floor, would you be incorporating intersectionality? So intersectionality meaning like, uh, you know, how people have multiple different identities. So if you're a person of color, your LGBT and your your gender identity or yeah. LGB. Uh-huh. Yes. You know what I'm saying? I, I kind of get what you're saying. So I kind of asked that question to my supervisor, which is a person who I mainly interviewed for this um, article. And I liked how he responded to that because he said that this floor will be an example that housing accepts anyone regardless of their background in regards to their, their religion, their nationality, um, where they come from, their color, their skin. So it'll be an all-inclusive living floor, um, if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah. All right, that's awesome. I definitely hope that that works out, because I think that that's just something really amazing that they're doing. Absolutely. And then um, what about for your second article? What would you call it? Like a, um, an, an um, editorial <laughs> chronicle? I don't, what would you call at it? At first I called it an opinion piece, but... I reread it like three times and I decided to call it a chronicle. And for those who don't know what a chronicle is, it's kind of like an article, but it's more like literature-wise article. So you, you see vivid images being thrown out, kind of like when you see when you're reading a novel or a poem. So it's a mixture of that. The reason why I decided to make it into that type of writing is because one of my Spanish professors, um, Professor Murrieta, he was the one who since my freshman year has inspired me to write this way. And the reason why I love it is because not only does he do it this way, but Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's another poet who recently died like a couple years ago, he would write like this. So in his um, literature, you would see how like every sentence you would read from him, you would literally see, smell, or touch what he was describing to you. And so I took all of that into this article. And basically this article titled, Our Voices Will Be Heard, it's mainly about how I felt on election night. Because I remember I was here uh, at the signal office uh, for election night because we were reporting live about local elections. Obviously, we, we saw on live TV who, won, who had won the election. And that obviously disappointed me a lot. And I remember um, my journalism advisor was here as well, Dr. Stevens. And I remember I looked to her, well, not even looked to her, I just, like, threw out a comment uh, with disappointment. I was just like, oh, well, this just means that I'll, like, have to drop out of college. And the reason why I said that was because, like, I, I've always feared that this man that is now our president could be our president at that moment. I was just like, well, we all have been following him since 2015. We've all known what he said about us people of color yeah even before that he was like the person to be like obama wasn't born here like... exactly yeah so he was just this man that i've always thought is illegitimate i still think he's illegitimate um for me he will never be legitimate um so yeah i would i, I at that moment i was like i cannot believe that this man just became the u.s the president of the united states and so as soon as he got elected i was like well I'll, I'll probably be deported. I mean, even though I'm a citizen, I'll, I'll probably get deported. And this, we, we've seen this happen like throughout history. If you really study the history of Chicanos in, back in the, if I'm not mistaken, the 50s, the 40s, or the 60s, even those who were from the US, from, the, from this country, we saw that they got deported from 
our federal government. So like this, if this were to happen in recent days, it's it's nothing new because we see this happening throughout Chicano history. I mean, you even see it with the internment camps of the Japanese. Exactly. You know, during World War Two. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they were American citizens and they many of them wanted to prove their citizenship by signing up for the you know mm-hmm. the armed forces, they were still denied that opportunity yeah. and thrown into these internment camps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it was the last time U.S. citizens from Latin American backgrounds were majorly deported was back in during the Great Depression. That was the main portion, like when a lot of U.S. citizens with immigrant parents were all together deported. So like, and like Steph said, the Japanese, the whole, that whole issue that went on um, back when World War II mm-hmm. was going on. I mean, so it's, it's like history repeating itself. But anyways, I, I feel like I went off tangents. But that's why I said that comment to in front of Dr. Stevens was because uh, I in my mind I was like, well, like he's promised to deport anyone that looks Mexican. And I mean, sure enough, I come from Mexican background, so I thought that I was going to be deported and I was supposed and I was going to be obligated to leave school. And so as soon as I said that, I remember Dr. Stevens, <laughs> she was like really like surprised or triggered that I had said that. Um, and she just like, she, I remember she just like looked back at me very like fast and like mad. And she was like, no, this will just mean that you'll be a great reporter, blah, blah, blah. That sounds like a scary movie. Like she just looked at you. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, she basically tried to like make me feel better. But at the moment it was so like impossible, especially because it's like this white woman is telling me this, me, a Mexican young adult. And so for me, I was like, well, she's just saying this because, you know, for her, it's easy to say she she's white. I'm over here brown, so it's easy to say. But that was me at the moment. No hate against Dr. Stevens. It was just a thought. <laughs> and so eventually, um, you know, I got to my room. A lot of emotional things happened. were going through my mind. And then um, fast forward to inauguration week. I remember I watched everything for inauguration week, including inauguration day. I mean, personally... Me, I didn't want to watch it, but my journalistic side was like, you need to watch it. You need to be aware of what's happening, what happened, what he'll say, what, what he's going to say, uh, Obama's expressions. I just wanted to know. And so, yeah, I watched everything. And throughout the inauguration week, I remember I watched the last press conference with Obama and he was praising all journalists that were there. And so that kind of like, I put that in comparison as to how... Um, Trump still talks about journalists and how he like gives them very little credit. He only gives credit to Fox News, which we all know it's kind of like <clears throat> yeah, anything anybody else says is fake news like yeah. that. But Fox media. News, <laughs> you know, what, what's the damn term? alternative uh, alternative facts. Alternative facts, yes. <laughs> so yeah, um, so yeah, I compared us. I compared how Obama and Trump would talk about um, journalists. And something that stuck to me about Obama was that he's, he told the journalists, like, oh, no, your, your job is not to be happy about anyone's responses, not even the president's. It's only your job to be persevering for a better response and be mad if you don't get a response, especially from your president. And so that kind of made me more inspired. And that's when it connected, like, oh, that it is true what Dr. Stevens told me that night, that it's only my job to, like, work harder as a journalist. And now that Obama's saying it, it just reinforces it. So after that, it was just like an inspirational moment um, where I had to like empower myself through these words. And that's basically the chronicle that I wrote. That's basically what it's about. (laughs) Um, Like, I love this. I think this was definitely my favorite article of this issue because it 
the way that you wrote it really made me like it made me remember what it was like because I was there with you like I was at the signal we were all there like I think we all kind of felt um you know the same (laughs) way and like the way that you describe how you got home and like you got comfortable like that's like that's what I did that's what I remember I remember I was like I'm gonna put on my pjs and cry with my dog Mm -hmm. and like you mentioned (laughs) that like you get really raw and you talk about how um, you haven't cried that hard since your dad passed away. And, like, that yeah. is really... I think that was the part that broke me. Like, I started crying. A yeah, lot. and it's weird because it was really hard for me to even, like, include that sentence in, in, in the chronicle. The fact that I wrote the sentence that the last time I cried this way was when my dad passed away. But when I say this and I dare to print it in our newspaper, it's not a lie. Like, mm-hmm. the amount of, like tears that I cried that night before like Steph went to pick me up were just ridiculous to the point where like I started acting I you know how like little kids when they cry they have they struggle to like grab air mm-hmm. that was me and but the thing is that I have roommates and like my my walls are really thin so I had to cry into my pillow so so yeah I didn't want anyone to hear me I'm very like very reserved I don't like showing my emotions but, I mean, that's just me. <laughs> no, I know. I feel it, especially something like this. Mm-hmm. Something that has happened so publicly. And, like, yeah. some people are like, well, it doesn't directly affect you. But it really does. It really does. <laughs> um, I could totally relate with Jesus' emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, that night, I was in, I was just in complete disbelief. You know, because I was also here with y'all during the signal. Like, you and were. we came back from uh, the Michael Eggman oh, uh, yeah. viewing party in Modesto. Mm-hmm. And we were all just kind of sitting here like, wow, you know, and they were like predicting the stock markets and how like everybody was already, you know, other countries were already like, all right, bye. Like, mm-hmm. no, thank you, U.S. Like, so we already started to see like little bits of, you know, uh, effects. effects from, you know, the the election. Yeah. Um, and then for me, it, it was just like a complete like numbingness, you know, it was like a coping mechanism. I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to put on a coat of like apathy and just walk around life like this because I can't deal with these emotions right now. Like, I just can't, you know? Um, and then when the protest started happening, uh, like, the, my first protest that I attended in Modesto, I broke down in the car on the way there. Like, I was telling my, my partner, I was like, how can a man, you know, who does all these things and, like, say these things become the most, you know, get into the most important office of the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you dare insult my family when they've worked so hard? Yeah. Like, how do you call, you know... I was just, like, yelling at my partner, and she was just kind of, like, just letting it happen because it was all these raw emotions that I had been bottling up since the night of election that I just yeah. couldn't process. And then the, the night, bef- you know, a little bit before I went to the protest, like, I just exploded in the car. I was like, I can't take this anymore. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't be apathetic towards yeah. this. Like, I can't be <laughs> numb. Like, this is just way- getting way too difficult for me to handle. Um, and just like Hasu said, like I had, I couldn't catch my breath. I was just upset. I was just yelling at into the air. Um, so I definitely relate to what Hasu was saying. Yeah, it was a really hard night. And then uh, something else that I actually haven't mentioned yet. Um, this is part of the La Letra Eña section, so it's also written in Spanish. It is also written in Spanish. And I reread it in Spanish, and I think I cried even more. Like seeing it in Spanish, I don't know. Like it brings out so much more emotion. I don't. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it it totally is. I mean, it's weird because my thoughts are in English, if that makes sense. So when I when I know that I'm writing a piece for La Letra Eña. I first write it in English and then translate it in Spanish. 
but I don't do literal translation, which is always bad. Um, yeah, no, that like that wouldn't work. Like you exactly. can see the emotion. Uh, it's beautiful. Exactly. I so <laughs> I get the whole context. I read a sentence. I get the context of the sentence, and then I reword. I like just rephrase it, but in Spanish with more. It's more romanticized, I should say, honestly. And that's why I love Spanish, because it's like... I mean, Spanish itself is already a romantic language. So the fact that I can, like, just play around with it for La Letra Ñ, it makes it more more fun, and it's really awesome. Um, is there anything that you want people listening or people reading your article to, to know? Like, is there anything that you want to get out there? What do you wish people knew? Um... Hmm... What do I want people to know? Well, first of all, a lot of people don't know that we have La Letra Ñ, which is our Spanish section of the newspaper. So I want to bring up that point that whoever's listening out there and has any literature that they want to be published for La Letra Ñ, um, either English or Spanish, it can always be translated. I'm really good at translation. Uh, feel free to submit it to the signal. Um, I'm the coordinator for La Letraña, so I'll be taking care of that if it, re- if it regards La Letraña. Um, secondly, um, I just want to tell people that hopefully they read my chronicle without thinking that it's weird, because I feel like those who don't appreciate literature will think it's weird, because if you read it, it literally explains how I literally get undressed, get into my comfortable clothes. But that's art, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. It's like it's it's something you vivid you see throughout li- through literature. Um, so for those who are out there and start reading my chronicle, I guess like just have an open mind. Um, take in regards that my emotions were mixed with it, so I put a lot of effort and a lot of emotions into it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for having me. So that's it for Ask the Reporter. Um, Tune in next week. We're going to have a specialty episode where I talk to one of the music teachers about the upcoming jazz concert. And then, um, of course, the music that you heard in today's episode, as always, is from the KCSS compilation album. You can look that up on kcss.net. And all the stories that we mentioned here today, you can find in either the print edition or online. See you next time. Just says